The last week we began a very brief series, only three weeks long, talking about four different gardens uh, in Scripture. There's a reason for that, uh, is that uh, we're people of the Word. The Bible is uh, really our foundations, faith, practice. We know that to be true. Uh, but uh, to understand the Bible, we don't understand what it's, it's a story at its core. Uh, there's a lot of other good things that are in it, but the Bible is an amazing story, a true story. Uh, but it's our story, a story between... Uh, uh, us and God. It's a story of our redemption. It's a story of God's work within us, and it gives us an understanding context for us to live within. Of course, it gives us guidance to live by and things like this, but we want to understand really that, that great profound story which we are part of. And as we uh, uh, go through Scripture, recognize that, that like any good story, this story, which I would say is like the meta story, it's the first and the greatest of all stories, it, it has the key components of it. It has a beginning, it has an introduction, it has a climax, something big that happens, and then it has a resolution at the very end. It's, it's an amazing thing, and, and we can be part of that. Well, last week we talked about the introduction, uh, that you, the creation, Adam and Eve, and we see in there that there was this really a tale of two trees in perfection where God made Adam and Eve, and, and He put them in the garden, and He really gives them a very simple choice uh, that you can choose to be loyal and have access to the tree of life and live forever in perfection with uh, relationship with God and with each other and with nature and everything would work great. You could have that. You could be loyal and, and be faithful and have that and have access to the tree of life, or you could be disloyal and you could choose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, and so being become like God and being able to have the capacity to choose for yourself what is right and wrong. But of course, that leads to death and uh, that's really where the story begins. Then we see at the end of that portion of it, then, of course, Adam and Eve, unfortunately, chose selfishness. They chose disloyalty to God. They chose faithlessness. They didn't trust God. They thought God was holding out on them. They believed the devil's lie that said, you know, if God doesn't want you to have this. He doesn't want you to choose right from wrong yourself. You know, he's, he's keeping the best from you. And so he... Uh, uh, if, if you would just uh, eat that tree, you could be like them. That's what they chose. Their eyes were opened, and they realized it's not what they wanted at all. Shame came immediately, then there was problems, and God said, well, we can't let them continue to have access to the tree of life because this broken humanity is going to continue to get more and more broken. And so he had to cast them out of Eden and separate it from God. And that's really where the story begins. Now today, we find ourselves in a different garden, in fact, two of them, uh, which uh, is not the Garden of Eden, but we have two different gardens where the climax of all of human history, all of everything, happens in these two amazing gardens, which is where we find ourselves today. But before we get to those gardens, let's just remember what brought us up to this climax. That we have Adam and Eve, of course, they ate from that tree. They're cast from the garden. And then you would think from that moment, from that first point of which they recognize that, that their own, doing what was right in their own eyes, eating that, the knowledge of the, uh, the fruit and all of this, that this caused shame and things like this. You would think from that moment they would say, well, God, okay, let's go back. Let's tell us what do you say is right. But that's not what happens. In fact, their first family that, that they have, they have a couple boys uh, Cain and Abel, and right from the get-go, one of the boys kills the other. Did what was right as all. I was upset that God received, accepted one sacrifice and not the other one, and so there was jealousy, and God even warned him, don't do that, but instead, he did, instead of being faithful to God, he chose to do what he thought was right in his own eyes, and Cain killed his brother Abel. 
Fortunately, there was a third son, Seth, that was born and uh, carried on a different legacy. But even then, as the people began to populate and grow throughout the earth, you would say, well, did they begin then to choose to say, okay, we recognize that doing what's right in our own eyes causes us to kill our family members. Maybe we shouldn't do that. No. What we find is in these generations from, from Abel all the way down to Noah, that people got more and more and more wicked. But it's the crazy thing in Scripture, in Genesis, you read this, is that the more wicked they got, the more it says in Scripture is that they thought they were moral. It says that they were doing, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Don't miss that. And the earth was filled with wickedness and violence. And so the more that they chose that poison from Eden just began to surge through the blood of all humans. And the more that people began to be moral according to their own standards and be justified in killing the people that they didn't like and taking stealing from others because they felt that they should have those things. The more that happened, the more the earth just got more and more violent to the point that God said, enough. There was only one family left that was even remotely righteous, of Noah. And he calls this old man Noah and he says, build a boat. We're going we're to clean up this place up. And so he builds a boat, an ark, brings two of the animals, all different animals, and he brings Noah and his family on that, and God washes the earth clean from all the sin. You ever wondered, thought, man, if we could just wipe the world clean from all the bad ideas and all the people with all the bad ideas, we'd be fine? Right, we'll just get a fresh start. Well, that's what happened with Noah. And Noah lived, he understood, he was, he was saved because he was, even though he wasn't perfect, he, had, he was faithful to God. God told him to do something that made no sense. That great consequence and cost to himself. He built this, this ark, he gets on it, his family, and they get off the ark, and all of the people who were left alive on earth had seen the consequence of sin, right? The depravity of, of what happens to humanity when we do what's right in our own eyes. And all of these people had experienced the judgment of that and, and death itself. They had seen the world, a great apocalypse. You would think then that they would understand that maybe we should just go back and be faithful to God. Let's just do what he told us to do. And they get off the ark, and God gives them a, a promise, and he says, I'm not going to wash you clean with, with water again like this. There's not going to be a big old flood, but fire's coming next, so just be careful. But he tells them, be fruit, be multiplied. Go throughout the earth and do this. And what do they do? No, they did what was right in their own eyes. Instead of doing the simple thing that God asked them to do, they go into to the plains right below the mountains, and they build a huge tower, Babel. And they decide that we're going to gather all humanity together here and we're going to rise up to heaven so we can be basically gods ourselves. Why so tall? Maybe so it's tall enough that it won't get flooded. Who knows? But they build this big thing and, and, and God, instead of bringing this massive judgment of death, he brings language, and separates the people, sends them throughout the earth in his great mercy. But we see what happens is that all, every one of those cultures became more and more and more depraved. Every one of them, even as they could know was still living and breathing, they started to build uh, idols and began to worship them. Lots of different little gods that they started to worship. Even in the, the, the shadow of the mountain with the ark on it, they, they did this. And humanity became more and more and more depraved. And it was very clear from humanity's perspective that we were not going to be able to save ourselves, that the poison of Eden was running its course and death was the inevitable end of all of humanity. 
And so God mercifully intervened, and he took a man from a very pagan culture. He took Abraham from Ur the Chaldees. that had all of these pagan gods. They had lots of them that were there, and they worshipped rocks and sticks and silly things. And he calls this man out, and he says, I'm going to send you to a place you don't even know. Just trust me. And Abraham, by faith, he chose to be faithful to God. He left. It's just kind of like Noah. The one out of the many he finally chooses. And God says, out of your children, I'm going to do a good work. I'm going to undo the poison of Eden from one of your children. And then the story begins as you see, you see the children of Abraham. And, and even though their father Abraham was a faithful man, he trusted God. He wasn't a perfect man. He did some pretty questionable things. And his children weren't much better. You have Isaac and, and then Jacob. And, and Jacob's got 12 sons. And one of those sons, he was horribly unfair. Like he, he treated him so much better than the others and did this, this very damaging thing for a family. He had favoritism for, for Joseph. And the other sons got so mad, they did the same thing that, that happened way back outside of the Garden of Eden where, where Cain kills his brother. These other brothers say, let's kill Joseph. It's right in our own eyes what's happening because we've been treated unjustly. But fortunately, uh, they didn't end up killing him. They just sold him into slavery. And God brought mercy in the midst of that and what they intended for evil. God did something good and lifted Joseph up into a great, of great place of great power, became vice uh, pharaoh of the land and brings all of his brothers and their families down to Egypt and saves them from a horrible famine. And for 400 years they stay there and over time the pharaoh forgets and then they are put into slavery. And they're, and they're made into slaves for hundreds of years, generations, as they wait for God to, to do something to keep his promise because he told Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And they didn't have a land. <laughs> and then finally God brought this man named Moses. And this people, even though they were slaves and they were waiting, they were trusting in God. It was a people that were faithful, but they were not perfect. They still worshiped along with the Egyptians. But their God showed up and delivered them and brought them into Sinai, and he did something amazing. For the very first time in all of human history, God goes back and says, you still have the poison of Eden. You still do what's right in your own eyes, but I'm going to tell you what's right in my eyes. Here's a way to live that if, if, if you didn't have Eden, this is how you would have lived anyway. This is my standard of right and wrong. This is how I want you to be. This is, the, this is, what, this is uh, the, really the good thing. So you don't have to wonder anymore, guess and fight over what's truly moral and what isn't. He gives them the law and he makes them a people. And if you ever thought, if God would just tell us what to do, we would be fine with it. And, and the people started out pretty decent, but even before they got to the promised land, they just chose not to be faithful. They went into the land and they, they sent spies into the promised land to go check it out to say, God said, take it, it's yours. And the spies came back and 10 of the 12 spies says, no, in our eyes, this is not the right thing to do. God's not powerful enough. He's going to send us in. They're going to get squashed by these giants that live in this land. And two of the spies said, no, I think we could take this. But 10 said no, and the people chose the 10 spies. And so even that generation that experienced God's deliverance and had God's law, chose not to be faithful. So they wandered in a desert for 40 years until that generation died out, but their children got to go into the promised land. And they conquered the land, and then you think, 
Here are people, a, a nation, a holy people who God kept his promise to miraculously, supernaturally. They have God's law. They, they have his ways. They have his prophets. Certainly, if there is ever a hope for humanity to choose what's truly right, not just do what's right in our own eyes and bring death and destruction and depravity in this world, if there was ever a nation that could get it right, it should be this nation. But no, it didn't take long. They, they consistently chose their own way, and then the, they got into trouble, and, and all the pagan nations would come in, and then they would be like, oh yeah, we remember we have God. And then they would repent, and then God would bring a judge, which is like an Old Testament superhero, would give some kind of power to, and he would free them from this and deliver them, and they would be righteous until they forgot and they forget again, and it's this yo-yo of faithfulness. Faithful, not faithful. Faithful, not faithful. Faithful, not faithful. And finally, that they were like, you know what our problem is? Is that we don't have a king. If we just had a king that was righteous and good, then if we've got a good government, then we won't be on this yo-yo anymore. So they call, they got give us a king. And so God's like, I don't want to do that. You don't want it. And they're like, yes, we do. It's right in our own eyes. God said, fine. Here's the king you would have picked. Here's a very tall, handsome, eloquent man. Here's Saul. Saul started out good, but he didn't end up so good. And he started worshiping bad things, and he got filled with pride and all that kind of stuff because that's the poison of Eden. And so God replaced Saul with his own man of choosing, David. And David, a righteous man, a godly man, but not a perfect man, but he was faithful. You have a great government. And you would think now, aha, finally, you have a people who have God's laws, God's perfect laws, and a perfect a government with a really righteous, not corrupt at all, king over the top of it. Certainly, if there was ever going to be a nation in the world that would get it right, that would bring righteousness back into this world, if humanity had a chance of getting it right, this is it. But it didn't last. David, like all of us, got old and died. And his son Solomon, he was Solomon was great. He, he was gifted with wisdom like no one else. Wrote all kinds of amazing books, even on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The wisest individual to live. And yet, he did some dumb things. He did what was right in his own eyes, and he started to marry all these women, lots, hundreds of women. And not all of them loved the Lord. In fact, a lot of them didn't. And so he started to become like, well, I'll make this wife happy. I'll go worship her God or whatever. And then he got caught in this and he started doing what was right in his own eyes and his heart became divided. And God said, well, there's your perfect government. Lasted one term. And his, after Solomon dies, he's got a son and his son, it was a bonehead. And when Solomon died, his people were like, hey, you know, your dad was great, but he did make some things hard for us. Make it easier. And he's like, no, I'll make it even harder because that's how I'm going to show you my power. And then the kingdom was divided. Ten of the tribes abandoned this holy nation. The other two stayed with them. And then there was this time of separation. And guess what? Over and over again, you see the people going away from God. In fact, the northern ten tribes just had this path of just rejecting God. The first thing they did in their new capital is they built a golden calf in an altar with a golden calf on it. Kid you not. And it got worse from there. The southern tribes, at least, they had these moments where they would come back, they'd have good kings, and they would have revivals, and then they would go away from God, and they back to the yo-yo. Because righteousness doesn't come through a government. And righteousness doesn't come by just having the law. 
And righteous doesn't come just by having prophets that tell us what is true. The faithfulness is not something that is just uh, that is something that just can be imparted upon us or imposed upon us. Faithfulness is something so much deeper. And what we found in this story is over and over again that the people would come back to God and reject Him and come back to God and reject Him, and it got worse and worse and worse. And with every revolution, it just got more and more tragic. And finally, the northern ten tribes were just God was like, "You're done," and He sends them to Assyria, and they disappear. And then. Uh, not much longer, later than that, the Babylonians came and took the southern two tribes and, and put them into captivity for 70 years, a little time out to remind them, hey, listen, uh, be faithful. And they do, and they come back into the land. And once they go back into the land, you would think, okay, now, aha, this, these southern two, this is, a, this is a purified land. They really have chosen God, you would think. But did they? No. And we find after that, God brought prophets and things, and the people continued to even use the law as a way, as a weapon to do whatever they wanted. They could twist the law to to get their own way, to do what was right in their own eyes. And this happened for hundreds of years, and finally God just stopped talking to the prophets, and you have a 400-year gap. And in that time, you eventually have the Greeks, Alexander the Great comes down, he takes over the land, and brings his pagan ideals into that, and leaves, and then uh, they have the Maccabees kicks them out, and then the Romans come in and conquer the land, and now you just have a conquered, defeated people who have the law, but have proven to themselves and the entire world that the humans of ourselves lack the capacity to be faithful on our own. We lack the capacity to be good in and of ourselves that we cannot, cannot deserve the free, the tree of, the, of, of life that we will always continue to just to choose what is wrong. Depravity was inherent somehow in this nature of humanity. And it was broken. And this then brings us to where the New Testament begins. And we find a broken people. And we find it at a point where it seems like all hope really is lost. That God has given us everything. Life, he given us direction, he gave us the law, he gave him good government, he gave him everything. And yet, nothing was good enough to make us truly faithful to God. And so then God sent his own son. And the Messiah was born, prophesied over 300 times before so we would know who he was. And he lived amongst the people for 30 years and he taught and he had a three-year ministry in which he did miracles and he, he taught about the kingdom of God and he declared who God was and he called people back into righteousness. And before he even came, there was a, a man that was a prophet named John who called the nation back to repentance, said, be faithful to God. That was his whole ministry to prepare the way of the Messiah. You had all of this happen in this one generation. And Jesus had taught and he did all of these things in his, in his life. In his, he did all these miracles and he had crowds follow him and all of these things. And, and then we get to the culmination of it all. Would people choose God now that he himself showed up? Would they choose God now that God himself came and revealed a different way, his law to them? Sadly, mostly, no. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 26, because this is where the climax of everything happens. See, it really happens at the end of Jesus' three-year ministry. And a week earlier, before we get to, to Matthew 26, there was a day where Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And, and, and the crowds, everybody, it was undeniable that Jesus was the Messiah, undeniable he's God, and yet so many still denied him. But 
at that time, there was a lot of fervor because they said, if this is the Messiah, then we're going to welcome him into the city because here comes our Messiah. And this is what we expect our Messiah to do because this is what's right in our eyes. The Messiah is going to come in and he's going to be a military leader and he's going to destroy these stinky Romans and he's going to destroy all of the, the wickedness of the Gentiles and he's going to usher in and restore the glory of, of David's throne. And Israel is going to be the pinnacle now, not Rome. And he's going to do all of these amazing things. So they lined up on this steep hill, the Mount of Olives. Some of you walked down that steep hill and he rode down on a donkey, meek and mild. And they threw their jackets on the ground and palm branches on the ground. And they would cry out, Hosanna, which means save us, Lord. Right? They're like, you're going to come in. You're going to finally be the Messiah. You're going to do what we think God should do. And Jesus rides in there and halfway down, he weeps for the city because he knows they missed the whole point. But he goes from the city and he spends a week there. And he, instead of raising up a, a religious fervor and, and going to the religious leaders and saying, all right, guys, here's the war plan. This is how we're going to take down the Romans. He taught in the temples. He, he challenged the religious leaders. He, 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 he began to show, continue to heal people and show mercy to others. He was not doing what they thought a Messiah should do. He was not doing what was right in their eyes. And at the end of that week was the most holy holiday for, for the Jewish people. It was the uh, uh, Passover. Uh, and so Jesus comes together with his disciples to celebrate this Passover meal, which we understand is the Last Supper. And at the end of that wonderful meal, he goes down with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is where we pick up the story. And it says, Jesus went to his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, sit here while I go over there to pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Now Gethsemane, and some of you have been there, it's a beautiful little garden. It's at the foot of, of a Mount of Olives. It's, it means olive press because if you're going to bring olives, you're going to harvest them, you're going to bring them down to the bottom of the hill, and there's a Kidron Valley right there, and not very far across the hill is the Temple Mount. You could see it's so close. If, if I was a good at throwing a baseball, it'd be like two good baseball throws. It's not very far away, right? And, and so here's this little garden, this picturesque wonderful little space that's olive, where olives were pressed to make olive oil. It was a place of industry and life, and it was gorgeous. And Jesus would go there oftentimes because it was serene and bring his disciples there. And it's here in this picturesque garden that the greatest battle in all of human history was fought. The greatest battle, I would say, probably in eternity was fought. It's where Jesus faces his greatest challenge. And it was not with small stakes. The souls of all humanity, as well as God's righteous name, were on the line. The stakes could not be higher. And so we see in this garden, uh, we, we say that Jesus was, uh, was coming into it pretty strong. At this point, Jesus had already defeated some pretty big enemies. He defeated the devil right at the beginning of his ministry right? When he was taken to the wilderness, he also defeated the devil consistently throughout the next, next three years as he cast out legions of demons from people. He had not only overcome Satan, but he also overcame nature itself. He did miracles, all kinds of miracles, walking on water. He calms the storm with his words. He, he 
feeds people with loaves and, and fishes that, you know, just a small number feeds thousands, right? He, he, he had conquered illness, right? He healed the blind and the deaf and the mute and the paralyzed and the lepers and, and even Peter's mother-in-law. Like he just would heal everybody, right? He, he even overcome death. He conquered death itself, right? He, he healed the, the widow's son at Nain. He, he, uh, he healed uh, Jairus' daughter from the grave. And then his friend Lazarus, who was dead for four days. He'd chosen that he had a lot of power. Jesus had a lot of confidence. And it wasn't just over those things. He had also, he'd also overcome the, his critics. I mean, he debated them daily, and they could not stump him. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law, the lawyers, they came to him constantly and went away stumped, amazed at his wisdom. And not only that, he overcame the brainless mobs who came at him with stones and things trying to push him off of cliffs, and he would just walk right through. He was proven to be untouchable in control and powerful. You would think, now, like, what could be the greatest challenge bigger than any of these? The challenge was this. In the garden, Jesus had to face himself. In Matthew 26, verse 39... It says, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This cup was the cup of suffering. Right? It's uh, in the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, Ezekiel uh, 23, uh, several of the Psalms talk about this. It's an illustration of God would take his wrath for people's sins and he would like, like he would squeeze grapes, he would squeeze his wrath into a cup and he would force his enemies to drink that bitter cup. And it would cause great suffering. That was an illustration of, of God's anger against those who sin. And Jesus is saying that God is asking him to drink the full cup of God's wrath for sin, for all the wickedness. And Jesus didn't want to do it, because who would? But Jesus had a, a different thing. You see, Jesus never sinned. This wasn't his cup to drink. It was not fair for Jesus to drink this cup. Everybody else, throughout all of history, all those other people, all the other sinners, they should drink the cup, but not the one, the only one throughout all of human history who hasn't sinned, why should he have to drink this cup? According to our knowledge of what's fair, the, our understanding of what's good and evil, this does not typically qualify. It offends so many. This is why the gospel is offensive. And if Jesus wanted to, he could have said, God, I will not drink this cup. You have no right to ask me to. I'm going to choose my way, not faithfulness. And he had a lot to lose. And he had no obligation to do it. And so we find Jesus really back in the garden. And there are two trees before him. He could choose the tree of life. He could just have lived forever, go back to glory. He could have taken that. Or he could have chosen... He could have chosen his own will. He could have said, you know what? I'm not going to do what God the Father wants me to do. I'm going to do this right in my own eyes. This makes no sense. It's not my will. You see that right here. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus didn't want to do this. But if he did that, he knew that he couldn't have access to the tree of life. That, so, he's like, if I want the tree of life, I'm going to have to be faithful. I'm not going to do what I want to do. I'm not going to do what's right in my own eyes. 
Even though it doesn't make sense to me, Father, what you want from me, I'm going to choose what you're asking of me. This is the one time that, that we see Jesus did an amazing thing. He did what no human had ever done. Not throughout from Abraham, not all the way back into to Noah, not all the way back to Adam. No one had ever done this, had just chosen God's way completely. Not did what was right in their own eyes, but intentionally, purposefully said, God, I'm going to be faithful to you, and I'm going to trust you with the consequence, even though it seems like it's denying me the tree of life. And so, he chose faithfulness. Then he gets up after this, and it was a big battle. It says it was so tough that he was, he was uh, sweating drops of blood. This was not a small battle. Jesus had defeated his own selfishness. How amazing. And he gets up and he goes, talks to his disciples who fell asleep because they had no idea what was just happening. And he says, guys, get up. You got to pray. This is a big night. And then he says, after that, he goes back again. And he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. At this point, Jesus had already made the decision but, that he was going to follow God. So now, well, now he just resigns himself. He surrenders his own will to God. He'd chosen God's will, now he surrenders his own. And it is here, right here, that the battle for humanity was won. It was here, right here, that, that the choice that was made in Eden was, Eden was undone. That, that finally there was a human person that was born uh, of, of human flesh. Even though Jesus is fully God, he was also fully man, and he chose what no human had ever chosen. He chose God's will completely, surrendered himself to it. And because of that, not long later, he was arrested, betrayed by a friend, arrested. He was uh, tried by a couple kangaroo courts. He was beaten and flogged. He was crucified. Eventually, he dies on a cross as a criminal. And then he's taken off of that cross, and he's buried. And that's where we pick up the second garden. In John 19, 41, it says, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, a new tomb, in which no one had ever been laid. And this is where Jesus was taken. It wasn't very far away, and some of you have seen it. You have been there. It's, it's, that, it's amazing how all of the big things in Scripture end up in gardens. And Jesus is taken to a garden tomb, as the prophets said it would happen. So from Gethsemane to a cross and to a cross to, to his grave. Now in Gethsemane, the question was, would Jesus reject the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Would he finally choose faithfulness? And he passed that test. But even though he chose faithfulness, he was still dead. And faithfulness is supposed to lead to the tree of life. That's what the story begins with. That's the promise. How is it then that Jesus chose faithfulness and yet still is dead? That's the question in the garden. Would faithfulness really lead to life? And on the first day that he was in there, it seemed like no. And on the second day he was in the grave, it seemed like no. But on the third day, things changed. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 9. It says, After the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Now there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord had come down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothes were, were as white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. 
And then the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he's lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And then suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Oh, like how can you not read that with just like your hairs standing up? It's just some most amazing thing. Like Jesus, he rejected the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He rejected that poison. He said, no, I'm going to be faithful. And in spite of all the impossibilities, God's way proved true. And the gateway to the tree of life was opened again. And Jesus was raised from the dead, not just for a little while, but forever to eternal life, never to die again. He proved once and for all that, that faithfulness truly leads to Life. But the amazing thing in this story is that it, it's not just for Jesus. What a lousy story scripture would be if it was all humanity's sin we chose as we had this, and then anybody who's perfectly faithful can then have eternal life. But that's only one person, that's Jesus, who is also God, and everybody else, all the rest of humanity dies. That'd be dumb. That'd be a, a horrible story. The amazing thing, the most miraculous thing, the part that just still blows my mind is that Jesus didn't just open the gateway to the tree of life for himself, but to anyone. In Romans 5.18, it actually puts it this way. Just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, that's Adam and Eve, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. And why does it work this way? Because I don't know you, but I am just as wicked as Adam and Noah and and Abraham, and, and Moses. In fact, I'm far worse than all of those guys. And yet I have access to the tree of life? Why is that? I've chosen the tree of knowledge. of There's been so many times in, in my life where I've done what's right in my own eyes and not God's. I have been so sinful. I have brought wickedness in the world and oftentimes arrogantly thinking I was doing what was right. Why is it that I should have access to the tree of life because of what Jesus did? Because Jesus showed us that the access of the tree of life was not about righteousness, but about faithfulness. And I'm saved by God's grace through my faith. And so, we have two paths before us. And this is where the story then, and this great climax leads us to. It's one of those choose-your-own-adventures from this point. There's one path. We can follow the way of Adam. We can continue to do what's right in our own eyes, thinking of ourselves as moral and good, while we continue to bring death and brokenness on this planet, trying to, do, to earn our way back to God, doing what we think is best, and only bringing death and destruction. Or we can choose simply to follow Jesus, that we could trust God, we can live faithful lives, not perfect lives, that lead to life. And the rest of the story, when you go to Scripture, is just about that. It's about that choice of what does it look like if you want to follow Jesus instead of Adam. How do you do it? And you know what? It leads to the most amazing place. It leads us to the final garden, the garden we're going to read about in Revelation. Pastor Jesse's going to preach about that next week, and it's going to be awesome because who doesn't love like the happy ending? And there's a really good, amazing story. that. We're there. But today, we find ourselves in these two gardens of Gethsemane and the garden tomb.
And what can we learn from that? Well, a lot of things. But today, the big idea I want you to take away is this, is that God cares more about our fidelity than our morality. If you miss that part of the story, then you really miss the whole thing. You're not going to understand the new covenant. You're not going to understand what God's looking for. It's not that God doesn't care about morality, but if you don't have fidelity, you can't be moral. (laughs) That's why he cares about your fidelity, your faithfulness, more than anything. And this is really the stumbling blocks where most people miss the point. Most people think heaven is for the moral. And how do I know that? Because you ask somebody, when you die, are you going to go to heaven? They're like, well, I hope so. Like, well, what would make it so you could get to heaven? Well, I'm better than most people, or I hope I've lived a good enough life. That's not the test. Praise God, that's not the test. If that was the test, we'd all fail because good enough is perfection. And are you perfect? I'm not perfect. See, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil tempts us to believe that we can do what's right in our own eyes, that we can just live these perfect lives doing what we want to do, but that's the whole problem. Doing what's right in our own eyes makes us not do what's right in God's eyes, which makes us rebels from the King of Kings, from the Lord of Lords, from our very Creator. It's just why it it keeps us from God. Uh, Even when we try to do what's right and what we think is right happens to just conveniently agree with God, When we do those things, we're still not obeying God. We're still obeying ourselves. That's why in the New Testament, Paul even says, that's why my my righteousness are filthy rags. Even when I do good things, I do them for the wrong reason. That God's not looking for my good works. He's looking for my heart. That's what he wants. He wants you. Do you love him? Do you choose him? This is the key to choose which tree you're going to walk to. He wants your heart. He wants your fidelity. That's why Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for it is by grace you've been saved. That God just doesn't owe you salvation. He knows that you've already eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He knows that you've done wicked things. By grace you're saved. Why? Through faith. Not by works. It's not your morality. It's not doing enough good things. It's not being good enough to earn God's great favor. It's by saying to God, I choose you. Not my will, but yours be done. You're going to be my Lord so you can be my Savior that's what it's about. And faithfulness is is not just, well, I believe that God is a Savior. The devil believes that. Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? So faith is demonstrated through faithfulness. It's, It's living our lives for Christ, which leads us to obedience. That's what makes us moral. But we're not saved because we're moral. We become moral because first we're saved. And one great thing about this is faith, praise God, does not mean perfection. Abraham did a lot of really dumb things and yet is is a hero of faith because he continued to choose God. Noah didn't do awesome on everything, but he was enough. He was faithful enough. See, it's our faith that we're counted righteous. So be faithful to God. You have to choose him first and most. That's what it is. That's the test. Can you love him? Not your perfection. And so many people think, well, once I get my life together enough, I'll come back to church. It's not how it works. Go to God, and he'll get your life together. He'll give you eternal life. That's the pathway to eternal life. In John 14, Jesus puts it this way, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love them, will come to them, and make, and make our home with them, and anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Get this, if you love God, 
it's not that you can just grace abuse, that I've been saved, therefore I've got fire insurance. If you love Jesus, then you're going to choose faithfulness, just like he did. Not my will, but yours be done. Perfectly, no, but consistently, yes. It's going to be the cry of your heart. God, I want to please you. I, even if there's consequences in life that I don't understand, even if your way doesn't seem right to me, even if it seems unfair, even if it's contradictory to what our world says is moral, I'm going to choose you and your way. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be faithful. If you love him, you will obey him. And here's a crazy thing. Then it leads to the tree of life. My father will love them. We'll come to them. We'll make our home with them. Jesse's going to talk about that next week. His home has a tree of life in it. It's great. It's an amazing house. But if you do not love Jesus, you're not going to obey his teaching. You're going to obey yourself. It's what you're always going to do. It's human, humans have done for thousands of years. Don't trick yourself. It's not, you're not going to be anything different. And doing what's right in your own eyes, you may feel moral, but you will be dead. And what you bring into this world will be corruption and de despair and decay. There is a path of life before you, and it's by choosing Jesus, it's by loving him. And by loving him, don't say you love him if you're not willing to actually do what Jesus gave us to do. Say, not my will, but yours be done. Isn't that a great? Because now we have a pathway. That's the great climax. Next week, we get to go and see that resolution. What happens when we follow Jesus to the end? What does the next garden look like? It will blow your socks off. It is fantastic. It is worth it. But this week, how do you apply this? How do you choose to follow Jesus? Take your connection cards out. I've got some things for you to do. First one, read Matthew 26 to 28. This is the climax of humanity, of all of human history, the story of Scripture. This is when everything was won. It's the best thing. It's the battle where it's like the Rocky Balboa fights where he looks like he's down and out and is totally lost and all of a sudden, great and uh, amazing, overwhelming victory. But this is real, right? This, read this passage. This is when salvation was fought and, and won on our behalf. This is the greatest and happiest piece of all of Scripture. Read this passage. And the cool thing is, the acting party in this was God, not me, <laughs> that he won the victory. Second thing I want to challenge you to do is surrender your way. We have to lay down our idea of what we think is right and wrong, what we think is best. We got to start by saying, God, what is your will for your will to be done? And sometimes God calls us to do things that we naturally would have. But great, we'll follow him. Do it because he asked you to do it. But sometimes he challenges us and causes us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. Crazy things like love our enemies who we hate by nature. And yet you'll find a capacity to be able to forgive people and to be generous and to be kind. He will make you truly moral from the inside out. But he cannot do it until you first surrender your way. You have to say, I'm not going to eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil any longer. I'm not going to do what's right in my own eyes any longer. I'm done with that. I'm following Jesus. And as you surrender, so maybe there's something in your life right now that you're holding on to because you just think that you've read scripture and it doesn't make sense to you why God would say it should be this way. And you're like, ah, lay it down, surrender it. Life is on the other side of the surrender. As you do that, you have to choose obedience too. How foolish would it be just to lay down on our own desires if we didn't pick up God's? Then we would just be wandering in this world without purpose. But God's given us great purpose. So choose obedience. Make a decision in your heart right now when the Holy Spirit brings conviction as you read things in the Word. They say, I'm going to apply this. I'm not going to be saved because I do it perfectly, but I love you, Jesus, so I want to begin to live a different way. I want to begin following your direction. I want to, to love you so I can obey you. Make that decision, and maybe there's something even now that you know God's been asking you to do, but it seems scary. It, it seems different. It makes no sense to you. 
do it anyway. If God's asking you to choose obedience, life lies on the other side. Be faithful. Maybe there's somebody here, maybe everybody here, hopefully, you're like, you know what, this isn't just for me. This good news that we can have life, that the, that the doorway to the, to the knowledge of the tree of life, or the, the doorway to the tree of life is, is now open, that's not just something we're supposed to keep secret. Jesus paid a high price to open that gateway. And we're going to pray for our revival. We're going to pray that God revives us and allows us to saturate this valley with the good news of Jesus because there are so many out there who are walking in ignorance and they don't have this hope. They don't have this joy. They don't know this amazing God who's done all these things for them. So would you join me coming up on, on the 15th, on that Thursday, to come and to pray, spend an hour at least at prayer and prepare our hearts and our spirit and our congregation for what God wants to do in us. And maybe you're here this morning. This is the most important thing. If you, if you haven't chosen to follow Jesus, you're here this morning and you've never made that decision to, to, to surrender your life to be able to live for him, to die to yourself so you could live in Christ, to, to say, you know what, I'm not going to be moral enough to get into heaven that's that's not how you get in but by following jesus says that anyone who believes in him will be saved and will never perish if you need to make that decision do not leave this morning without making that decision start down the path that leads to life and if you need to do that of course there's a place on your connection card to write that but come talk with me i'll be staying in the back uh, i will help you take those steps you're going to believe confess repent be baptized you're going to be discipled you're going to be surrounded by people in the church who love you we're going to teach you how to live a new life of faith and you're going to see god come alive in you he's going to transform you from the inside out it's the greatest story and you're going to be part of that with the rest of the story that that goes to the the ultimate uh, salvation that we get to see it's going to be an awesome thing but start the journey if that's you make that decision today don't don't eat from the poison of eden any longer all right i've given you all good things to do back your connection card let me know what they are i pray for i do i pray for you every week if i know how it's even better and if, if you put your prayer requests on there too let me pray for you because the holy spirit is true god is true he answers prayer so let us pray for on your behalf with your church family and in a moment we're going to take our offering if you take our offering and the baskets are passed please take your connection cards everyone you just put them in those offering baskets as they're passed make this your first dedication declaration to god i'm choosing faithfulness today let me pray for you as we prepare to take our offering father god we love you more than anything in this world, we love you. Lord, and that's really what we want. I, I thank you so much that you came to this world to save us, that you did, uh, that you chose the righteous path. You gave us a, an example to follow, but also you gave us a, a way of salvation that we never could have earned on our own. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen our faith today. Help us be a faithful church, a faithful people. And so doing, then make us good. Father, if there's any here that today that that are feeling uh, under the condemnation of the enemy or of their own sins or themselves. Father, I pray that you, uh, we thank you for your, your forgiveness that is, was made available on the cross by grace that we're saved. I pray that you give them the ability to be forgiven by you, but also help them forgive themselves. Lord, free us from those things. Help us surrender our own will to yours. Help us be obedient, church, Lord, every one of those, those areas. Father, I pray, too, uh, that you prepare us for this uh, uh, this prayer uh, meeting on the 15th that you would gather us as a church family to pray in spirit and truth and, and, and make our hearts right for that. And Father, for anybody here who doesn't know you, I ask that you would draw them through your Holy Spirit into life. Uh, Father, take them off of that path that leads to death. Give them the courage and the faith to choose you today. Take these commitments, these prayer requests, and our offerings. Father, build your kingdom through them. 